Before the reading of Scripture, let us receive the instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism, one of our historic catechisms in the Reformed tradition, printed in the bulletin, reading responsively. What benefit do we receive from the resurrection of Christ? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us share in the righteousness which he has obtained for us through his death. Second, we too are now raised by his power to a new life. Third, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. And I call to your attention the scripture passages printed below that responsive reading for your further study and edification upon which the catechism is based. The scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John. We begin the reading at, chapter, at verse 19. This is the uh, account of two of Jesus' appearances following his resurrection. Before we read the scripture, let us ask the Lord's blessing. Let us pray as we sing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. It is written. On the evening of that day, the day on which Jesus was raised from the dead, the first day of the week, that is Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came. And stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, 
receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, that is, the following Sunday, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, this passage from John 20 may be perhaps the most well-known passage concerning Jesus' appearances to his apostles After his resurrection, the title, the attribution of Doubting Thomas is well known with reference to skeptics in general. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, it is the evening of that particular Sunday on which Jesus was raised from the dead, that is the evening of what we would call the first Easter And at that point, none of the apostles had seen the risen Lord. Only Mary Magdalene had seen the risen Lord, not recognizing him at first, supposing him to be the gardener, and seeing him only when he called her by name. Peter and John had seen the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, the grave cloths, in the otherwise empty tomb, but they had not yet seen the risen Lord. And so there was, at this point, a lot of confusion and anxiety among the ten disciples who were gathered there that evening. Judas had killed himself, and Thomas was not there, leaving the ten together in this account. And John tells us that the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of The Jews, that is, the official Jewish leadership. You understand that all of the ten disciples were, in fact, Jews. 
But since the Jewish leadership had persuaded Pilate to crucify Jesus, might they now also seek to have his followers killed as well? The disciples were afraid. Even after hearing the report of the women, even after having seen the grave cloths in the empty tomb, they were afraid. They were afraid of death. And John, who was there, tells us very simply, the doors being locked, Jesus came and stood among them. The locked doors did not keep him out. But he wasn't an apparition. He wasn't a bodiless ghost. He wasn't a visual hologram like a character in a Star Wars movie or something. They weren't seeing an hallucination or a mirage arising out of their grief or fear. It was Jesus. The body which had been laid in the tomb now stood in their midst. John tells us, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, to be sure, some transformation of that body had taken place. You know, his body had been literally ripped to shreds by the Roman whip prior to his crucifixion. The traditional artwork depicting Jesus on the cross does not do justice to the horror which had been inflicted upon his body prior to the crucifixion. And those kinds of wounds do not naturally heal in the space of 72 hours. But his body had, in fact, been healed. Those wounds were not oozing blood and pus. Though the marks of the wounds in his hands and feet were were visible. So his natural body had undergone a supernatural transformation. And although his body could be touched, and although he could and did actually eat a piece of fish, as Luke tells us, Jesus could also supernaturally appear and disappear. His body, raised from death, was no longer subject to the natural laws of physics in this old creation in which you and I now live. His body had been transformed for life in the everlasting new creation. As your body also will be. If indeed you are united to him by faith. What does the scripture say? Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Philippians chapter 3, 20. So when we say the apostles' creed, say it like you mean it. I believe in the resurrection Of the body. Now, John's account here 
In chapter 20 of Jesus' first appearance to the apostles on that first Easter evening also gives us some other important information, but in a very abbreviated, very condensed report. When Jesus appeared to his apostles that evening, the first thing that he said to them was, Peace be with you. This was more than a familiar Hebrew greeting. The blessing of peace, shalom, means far more than the, the absence of conflict. Far more than earthly tranquility. Shalom means complete well-being, wholeness, perfected blessedness. The infinite happiness of the kingdom of God, free from sin and death. Think of the Hebrew benediction from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious unto you and make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, and give you peace. Peace in the presence of God. And Jesus, who had died as the substitutionary sacrifice, who had suffered the wrath of God, who had endured the torments of hell, now spoke the blessing of peace, the shalom of God's new creation upon his disciples, the peace which this world cannot give and cannot take Away, But the blessing of this peace, the, bless, the blessing of peace from the Savior, from sin and the conqueror of death, was given to them to be spread throughout the world. And so, in words that foreshadowed the words of the Great Commission, which Jesus spoke on a later occasion, Matthew 28, Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That the world might know of the peace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And and when he had said this, he then did something which was a kind of acted parable. A symbolic action which foreshadowed what would later take place on the day of Pentecost, 50 days later. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This was Jesus' way of telling them and showing them that they would be receiving the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, so to speak, in fullness for their future mission in the world. And then Jesus told them that the purpose of their mission would be to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus said to them, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. But if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There's a lot more that could be said here, but briefly, Jesus' words do not mean that the apostles themselves had the divine authority to forgive sins, but that they and all those who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ do have the authority to declare the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ, and to declare that there is no forgiveness of sins apart from faith in Jesus Christ. This was the apostolic preaching of the gospel, which continues today whenever the biblical gospel is rightly proclaimed. So now, just think about, for example, this is just an example as an illustration. It doesn't cover everything here, but here's the example. Our liturgy of confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. 
Pastor Jonathan and I are very, very deliberate, very intentional, very clear when we declare the assurance of pardon, the forgiveness of sins to all those who truly repent of their sins and look to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the renewal of their lives with a repentant commitment to follow Jesus Christ in grateful obedience. You see, we, we do not declare the assurance of pardon, the forgiveness of sins, willy-nilly to anybody and everybody as though God forgives everybody everything whether they trust in Christ or not. No. Now, of course, that is the world's way of thinking about forgiveness. Everybody is forgiven everything just because. No, that's not the gospel. And those whose sins are not covered by the blood of Christ through repentance and faith in Jesus are not forgiven. That's the apostolic gospel. But it is not Pastor Jonathan or I or any Christian who is actually doing or withholding the forgiveness, but we are only declaring on behalf of Christ the basis on which forgiveness is granted or is withheld. So there was, there was a lot that took place on that first Easter evening as Jesus appeared to them for the first time and was preparing his disciples for their mission to the world, but Thomas was not there. We don't know why. The 19th century Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, notes that Thomas is quoted in the Gospel of John on two previous occasions, in both of which Thomas expresses a rather negative outlook or muddled understanding. Bishop Ryle surmises that Thomas had a certain personality temperament, inclined to be despondent, gloomy, perhaps easily discouraged. Perhaps Thomas saw no point in gathering with the other apostles on that evening. So when the other apostles later told Thomas that they had seen the Lord, his negative reaction may have been simply a reflection consistent with his glum personality. Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, in one sense, this account of Thomas's unbelief is very important because, first of all, it proves that the apostles were not gullible, superstitious, religiously fanatical men of pre-scientific ancient history. In fact, Thomas was no different, really, from any of the other apostles. You remember, the other apostles thought the report of the women was an idle tale. They all came to believe firmly in Jesus only after they had seen him. Now, Peter and John had, had begun to believe seeing, so to speak, through a glass darkly after they saw the grave cloths in the empty tomb. But even their faith was not confirmed until Jesus appeared to them. So we can understand Thomas's unbelief. 
We really ought not to beat up on him too much because at this point, he had not yet had the experience of actually seeing the risen Lord as the others had. But his words are particularly important because Thomas sounds like such a modern man, a man of the Enlightenment, an empiricist. One who must be convinced by empirical scientific observation. Who believes only in knowledge obtained through the five senses. In this case, especially sight and touch. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas sounds like a modern, contemporary, scientific skeptic, doesn't he? This passage shows us that the first century apostles were just as skeptical about Jesus' resurrection as 21st century skeptics. And therefore, this passage provides a credible testimony, credible historical testimony for us and skeptics today by telling us that the apostles themselves had to be convinced. As Luke says in the book of Acts, Jesus, quote, presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. That's what was taking place in this 40-day interval between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven. He was appearing over and over and over again to his disciples to convince them, to, to provide for them, as Luke says, many convincing proofs. And the apostles themselves had to be convinced intellectually of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. But I think that there may have been something else going on with Thomas. Something more than intellectual skepticism. Oh yes, he wanted proof. But I think it's very possible that Thomas's protest of unbelief was coming not only from his head, but also perhaps more so from his heart, his broken heart. Thomas had given himself to Jesus. He had followed Jesus. He had placed his faith and hope in Jesus. And Jesus had been crucified. And Thomas had been emotionally, psychologically, spiritually devastated. That melancholy, easily depressed, sensitive spirit of his had been crushed. And he wasn't about to let it happen again. He wasn't signing up for that again. No way. Unless. Thomas was unwilling to believe the unanimous testimony 
of the other ten with whom he had, he had lived for the last three years, with whom he had shared all kinds of experiences for the last three years. He was, he was unwilling to believe their unanimous testimony. It was just too great a risk. He would never be duped again. So you see, at this point, I think, Thomas's unbelief was not merely a matter of intellectual skepticism. It was also for personal reasons to guard his own broken heart a matter of willful unbelief. That's always the case with unbelief. It's always a matter of the heart as much or more than a matter of the head. Yes, of course, there are intellectual questions, and it's fine and it's good to ask them. Those intellectual questions can be satisfactorily answered. You know, those satisfactory answers don't change the skeptic into a believer. There's always something else going on in the heart. There's always a reason that the unbeliever doesn't want to believe. And that reason resides in the unbeliever's heart more than in his or her head. Because the consequences of belief, the consequences of surrendering to, trusting in, and following Jesus are too great because it means handing over your life to him. It is the very essence of our fallen nature to be unwilling to believe and to protest protest in willful unbelief. And there's only one person who can remove that willful unbelief. And that is Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And that is what happened to Thomas the next Sunday night. Uh, Now, by the way, do you see a pattern Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week, and appeared to his apostles on that Sunday evening, and the following Sunday evening, eight days later, counting in the Jewish way. This is the reason that we Christians observe the Sabbath day, not on the seventh day of the week, but instead on the first day of the week. And these Sunday evening appearances of the risen Lord ought to teach us that we are to observe the whole day as the Sabbath day, morning and evening, and that there is always a blessing to be received when we gather together as his disciples In the evening as well as in the morning, if not for corporate worship, then for small group fellowship, prayer meeting, Bible study, breaking bread together in our homes in his name. 
Some of you have said how much you enjoy your Sunday evening small group Bible study. You know why you enjoy it so much? Because when you come together, He comes to meet with you. He has shown us that He will meet with us and make His presence known to us when we come together morning and evening in His name. Brothers and sisters, we can't see Jesus with our natural sight. This is the whole point of this passage, really. We can't see Jesus with our natural sight, but that does not mean that he's not here. We can't reach out and touch his resurrected body with our hands, but that doesn't mean that he's not here. Now, you think about this, and this is kind of funny. I mean, it's, it's really serious, but just think about it. On that following Sunday evening, when Jesus again appeared to his disciples and said to Thomas, See my hands, my side, put out your hand, place it in my side. When Jesus appeared and said that to Thomas, he was proving, now think about this, Jesus was proving not only Not only that he was risen from the dead, but also Jesus was proving to Thomas that he had been there in the room when Thomas had declared his protest of unbelief. It was as though Jesus were saying to Thomas, You see, Thomas, I was really there all along. You just couldn't see me. But I heard everything you said. So now, here I am. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You see, the the way in which Jesus appeared to his apostles while they were behind locked doors, the way in which he appeared to the two who had walked along the road to Emmaus and then invited Jesus unknowingly into their home and sat at table and Jesus appeared to them and then vanished from their sight. The way in which Jesus appeared along the shore of the Lake of Galilee to the fishermen recorded in John 21. The ways, the manner in which Jesus appeared after his resurrection were intended to do three basic things. Number one, to prove to the apostles that he had risen from the dead. Number two, however, to teach the apostles that he was with them always, even when they could not see him. And three, to teach us that even though we cannot see him, He is always with us and in a particular way, especially when we gather together in his name. And after Thomas exclaimed his profession of faith, my Lord and my God, realizing that he was indeed in the presence of God, Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus said that because he knew. 
He knew. He knew. Jesus knew that he was going to make himself known to millions of people all over the world throughout world history. Jesus knew that he would change their hearts of willing unbelief. Jesus knew that he would change their minds from skepticism to conviction. Millions of people all over the world, throughout world history, who would never see him with their natural sight. And he has done that. And he is still doing it by the power of his word and spirit. You don't have to see him to believe in him. When he calls your name, your soul hears his voice. When he opens the eyes of your heart, you recognize him. So if there's anyone here today who's not sure and who for whatever reason is still unwilling to believe, just ask him. Not in an arrogant dare demanding proof. No. Just a humble plea. I I heard somebody this last week, very mature Christian, said that's, that's how he came to know the Lord. He just prayed, Lord, if you're there, show yourself to me. And he did. Lord Jesus, please make yourself known to me. Make me willing to believe in you. Change my willful unbelief into love and adoration. You see, that's the whole point of this passage. It's the whole point of the purpose of the entire gospel of John. As John says at the conclusion here, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Lord Jesus, open the eyes of my heart. Show yourself to me and enable me by faith to see you. My Lord and my God. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your Son, our Savior. And the wonderful ways in which he works, making himself known to blind sinners such as we. We give you glory for your grace upon us. We pray, O Lord, the continuing blessing of your spirit upon the gospel preached, that it might come to greater and greater life in our hearts and bear much fruit for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith.
saying together, 